Welcome to the Nobles You podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. Glad you're here. My name is Mike Kalin, the Director of Teaching and Learning here at Nobles, and I'm going to be your host today. Um, this is our second Nobles You podcast we're excited about, and I just wanted to take a moment to review the purpose of the podcast, its mission, uh, what we're up to a little bit. So through the podcast, we're hoping to speak with many faculty and staff members on campus, all involved with different kinds of work related to teaching and learning, DI culture and practices, academic technology, socio-emotional learning, and more. There's a lot of very cool, exciting stuff happening on campus, and there are a lot of people with a lot of different types of expertise on campus. And through the podcast, we're hoping to hear from folks, again, through different perspectives and ideas. So we're very excited for our second guest today to have Jenny Carlson Petrazic. Uh, Jenny's a member of our history department. She's taught online courses through Global Online Academy and is really a master teacher with expertise in curriculum, assessment, and teaching and learning practices in general. So Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, happy to be here. Awesome, so first just basic question is, how long have you worked at Nobles and in what different capacities? This is my 27th year at Nobles. I came in the fall of 1997 and um, I came as a, a full-time middle school teacher and coach and advisor, knowing that I would uh, step into the role of middle school head in a year or two when my predecessor uh, planned to step down. And so from the fall of 98 until the end of the uh, 2008-9 school year, I was the head of the middle school. Um, I stayed in the classroom as most nobles administrators still do, which I think is a plus. And um, after a, a family health emergency, uh, I returned after a year break um, in the capacity as class four, which at Nobles is ninth grade. So I was a ninth grade dean um, teaching ninth grade history classes uh, and working in the upper school. And since then, I have been teaching ninth grade and then also some 11th and 12th grade electives here on campus. Awesome. So one of the exciting things about speaking with you is just you have served in so many different capacities, which is just mm -hmm. a huge asset. So let's go to 2023. Uh, can you just tell us about some of the courses that you're teaching, uh, some of the themes or essential questions that are a part of those courses? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm back in the full time, back in the classroom full time. And I'm teaching three sections of what we call HHC, which is History of the Human Community. It's the required ninth grade history class. The title tells you not a thing about the content. <laughs> um, we we go quite hard at the concept of perspective, um, situatedness at the start of the year, trying to help kids understand that in order to study history and explore the history of others, it is absolutely necessary to recognize that each of us experiences the world through a fairly unique lens that helps us make meaning in the world. Um, and to study others, we need to recognize what lenses we are looking through and attempt to step into their shoes to understand what the components of their own lenses are, their own perspectives. 
Um, you can sort of hear some of my own academic background in my philosophy of teaching history. I'm an anthropology, uh, social cultural anthropology geek from undergrad and, and grad school. Um, HHC continues to continues on after that initial unit by doing three regional studies. We study India, the Middle East, and China. And in each of those, we look at the major religions or philosophies that are at play uh, over time in those regions, and then look at the age of empire, the age of European imperialism, and the age of nationalism, the rise of nationalism in those regions. So it's a meaty course. Um, And ambitious. I mean, the the goals mm, seem ambitious. mm -hmm. When you think about the course as a whole, what what are your favorite units or favorite parts of the course that you like to teach? Mm. Um, and, and I want to point out that thus far we're talking content, not skills, right? And I, uh, I think I speak on behalf of the, the HHC teaching core. In fact, I know that I do when I say that uh, content is far less important than the skill development we work on. Uh, but in terms of content, I, my, favorite, my favorite pieces to teach, I'd say the very first in, in helping kids understand situatedness uh, perspective in a, at a deeper level. Um, I love our second major chunk of focus in the Middle East, specifically the way, uh, the, the, the great variety of ways that nationalism manifests itself in different, uh, different countries. And the Middle East provides us with many opportunities to check that out. Um, and probably my favorite lesson of the entire year is when we when we focus on some of the more modern Hindu or the sort of Upanishadic concepts of samsara and dharma and karma, uh, moksha. Because for a lot of our students, it really forces them out of their own linear conception of time. And into a very different way of viewing, uh, viewing their world. It helps them to understand how worldview changes one's experience and meaning making in walking through similar circumstances to others. That's that's awesome. I mean, HHC certainly is a favorite for many of our students, and it's a great actually transition to the upper school for some students that's new to nobles, for some students coming from the middle school. Um, But as a U.S. history teacher, definitely doing a lot of things right because the skills that the students gain Mm -hmm. from that course are so useful in the rest of the curriculum. And speaking to the rest of the curriculum, can you speak a little bit about the elective that you teach? Yeah. Um, A decade or so ago, I... uh, created and proposed an elective called Power and Inequality, and I've been teaching that since. Um, Boy, is it fun to be able to create courses for students around concepts that you yourself are super interested in and and passionate about. Um, And Power and Inequality, or we refer to it as as just power, is is one such course. I've developed over the years numerous lessons. The content that we explore, whether it's uh, economic inequality or human trafficking or uh, water scarcity, um, 
the 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 content focus is uh, almost can be anything. <laughs> We've studied cults, for instance. It had a a group two years ago that was really interested in cults, um, because the the way I approach it is we'll take a topic in which exists significant um, examples of uh, types of power used intentionally to create unbalanced access to important resources or inequalities. Um, and through that content, I have kids practice a set of intellectual skills building toward um, a final project in which they're expected to um, utilize each of the skills that we have um, practiced throughout the course. And it's just, it's a great deal of fun. It's, uh, you know, I hear, I hear colleagues talk about the, the drop off in um, seniors' involvement and engagement in senior spring. And I really don't experience that much at all. Uh, kids are, are engaged. And I think a great deal of that has to do with the fact that um, I, I ask my students to help me design the class in some ways. Um, and I try to be responsive to the things that they are particularly uh, excited about exploring. And in their final project, uh, you know, the world is their oyster in terms of which inequality they focus on. What I'm mandating is uh, the application of the skills that we've studied. Um, so essentially, I'm helping them build a set of tools and then apply that intellectual set of tools to an inequality of their choosing. It seems like it has plenty of relevance to 2023. Um, <laughs> one of the things I'd, I'd like to do, I mean, you know, you can hear from your responses how thoughtful you are in terms of curriculum planning, assessment kinds of ideas, mm -hmm. and just taking a step back and thinking about teaching in general now with decades of experience. If you had to speak with a novice teacher or somebody looking to get into the profession, what qualities or characteristics do you think are most important for those aspiring to be great teachers? Hmm. It first might be, although I don't know that it's something you can acquire any faster than, <laughs> than the pace of life itself, but um, getting really comfortable with not being an expert. Uh, it took, you know, it took me, it took me quite a few years as a classroom teacher to be able to step back from my own high expectations of knowing everything, um, or at least pretending to. Um, and once, once you can, once you allow yourself the space to do that, I think it uh, it opens the door to much more collaboration with the learners in the room because you too are acknowledging that you are a learner in the room. Uh, so it allows you to connect with, to collaborate with your students, to learn from. And I also think there's great power in showing some sort of basic human vulnerability in front of your students, specifically as, um, as learners in an academic setting, right? Uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I would, you know, echo 
I don't have as many years of experience as you do, but that idea of giving up the notion of expertise, I think there's a lot of pressure early on when you're younger to feel like you have to be the expert in the room. And if you're not, the teachers are going to see through you or they're going to be skeptical of you. So I I definitely agree with that point. Um, Any other characteristics or or sort of models? Um, Yeah, I would would say also over time, my own clarity on uh, the why, right? which, Which always leads me to the conclusion that teaching kids how to is far more important than than teaching them any particular what right so this the skills always trump content um and i imagine as a a us teacher you would say the same if if your sophomores end the year understanding how to make sense of primary documents how do you ask really thoughtful, compelling questions, how to conduct research that leads them to not only find answers to their own research questions, but to spark the creation of new questions. That, after all, is what learning's all about, right? Allowing new information to create new questions. You kind of go after some answers and allow that new information to create new questions and curiosities in your own brain. Um, so I think too often our focus on mastering content actually builds hurdles for what real learning is all about. Yeah. No, it, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And you and I talk about technology quite a bit as well. And think about the arc even of the last you know several decades as the internet has become more a part of students' everyday lives. Content seems like it becomes even less important because they can immediately go to Google or any other search engine and and find exactly what content they might need to know, but it's much more difficult for them to do that to learn a skill. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, So thinking about that arc, you know, mentioning the last couple of decades, you mentioned here in the late 80s, if you think about the arc to 2023, what do you think the unique challenges are in the world today of being a teacher, 2023? What are some of the things that come to mind when you look back on the past that things may be difficult? I think there are a lot of advantages, so I don't think it's all doom and gloom, but mm-hmm. just curious what you think. Uh, yeah, we need to recognize, of course, that we're in a pretty specific educational context here, right? So when, when I talk about the role of teachers at a place like Nobles, there are all kinds of assumptions that uh, that come along with that, right? We're we're a well-resourced school. Um, I, I'm I'll probably never teach a class with more than eighteen students in it. Um, if I want my students to have a particular book or a particular program, that money is not an issue. So all of these things, you know, your your question is more general. Challenges to teaching today, yeah. Um, and yet, you know, context context makes a a huge difference. Yeah. Um, technology is is a place most will go with this question, and uh, understandably so. It's just uh, my hesitation in. Um, in labeling 
new technological advances, whatever the tools of the day are. And right now in early October of 2023, uh, the, the, you know, what we're all talking about is, is AI, generative AI. The tools are multiplying and their um, capacity, their, their uh, ability to churn out some pretty amazing um, material is what we're talking about as educators. How can we keep, um, I'm fumbling a lot here. How can we recognize the potential uses of and benefits of technological tools like generative AI and not throw the baby out with the bathwater by, um, by trying to just restrict its use in all educational settings? Um, doing so, you know, we, we can think back not that long ago to when search engines appeared. And we were asking ourselves as educators the same questions, like, oh, my goodness, what, is, what does it look like if all material is at every student's fingertips? How do we control what kids are, are digesting? Um, and so I, I think we have, to, we have to shift. We need to be able to um, be fallible. We need to recognize with our students, as I, th I think Nobles is doing a pretty good job of this, recognize with our students that this is brand new territory. We're all learning in it together. Um, we need to be able to experiment and fail and iterate and try again. And that goes for students <clears throat> and faculty alike. So I think, I think that is a perennial challenge for teaching right now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been heading the books on AI for the last several months. And I think that's certainly at the forefront of my mind. You also mentioned the academic context. You know, I've taught in public schools, worked a little bit in charter schools and independent schools. And each context does provide its own unique challenges and opportunities. And one of the yeah. things that I really enjoy about Nobles is our, is our financial aid program. Although it's still, you know, it's an affluent community, no doubt. But the financial aid component really makes some very diverse classes of all kinds. And that's mm -hmm. something that I've enjoyed in terms of the context here as well. Um, and it, it creates a lot of different unique perspectives, I think, in our classes and also creates challenges um, when we have kids coming from all sorts of different kinds of backgrounds and perspectives. Um, I wanted to shift right, gears a little bit. You know, I mentioned okay. in the intro that you are a Global Online Academy instructor. And for those that don't know, Global Online Academy is a consortium of public charter independent schools um, who do a lot of really innovative work with online education. Um, they do work both on the student-facing end and also do some great professional learning. Um, but I know you've taught some courses. And I just wanted to ask sort of about online education. We've been talking about technology. You know, what advantages did you find in online education? And what are the disadvantages um, when people think about moving towards online uh, teaching? I, I'll say that I, uh, I came to it with a great deal of skepticism, um, specifically around the, the ability or what I, I, uh, I questioned whether one could uh, or had the ability to create legitimate, like actual, genuine relationships in, in online education. Um, and that I was quite happy to have those concerns debunked a bit in my, in my GOA classes. Um, their model is keeping classes, class sizes quite small and 
requiring uh, synchronous opportunities for not only uh, individual students with the teacher, but full group of full students and teacher together. So there was there was built in FaceTime, lots of uh, lots of built in communication back and forth between students and the teacher, but also among students. Um, so that relationship building, it really is possible in online education. Um, that being said, it's not the same, right? So the relational aspect of education is easier in person. It just is. Uh, we have, you know, this year we're on a new schedule. We're, we've got 60 or 70 minutes with our, with our students. It's a long time to share space and read facial expressions and see body language, um, hear tone. These are things you don't have access to when, um, when you're reading papers or engaged in online discussion as, as, as opposed to uh, in-person and synchronous. So I see, I see it as, a, uh, as a, an impressive plan B to in-person education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like that. I, I like the metaphor of plan B for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and just because it's, it's a plan B doesn't mean it isn't a really fantastic, powerful option. Um, yeah. I will say, and I think, it's, I think it's an important positive to online education, is uh, preparing an online course requires setting a higher bar for the educator in terms of organization and thinking ahead, choosing your resources, being super clear about the why and the when of what you do. Um, I feel like as a, as a curricular architect, I am better at my job when I am building an online course than I am when I'm building an in-person course. Because I have to be, and you know that raises some logical questions. Uh, what should schools like ours adopt, borrow, perhaps with some tweaking from uh, from organizations like GOA, who have a, a a very structured response to how to build a solid course, uh, lots of coaching along the way built-in time for feedback from other educators about the course itself. Um, we don't do that in our school system. We, we're, we emphasize independent when we think about independent schools, right? Teachers are quite independent in the way they build their courses here. And I think sometimes to the detriment of our students, because I think, I, you know, I can speak from just using, <laughs> using I language. I could be a better teacher at Nobles if I adhered to the GOA course development process. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. I mean, I remember the COVID era not so long ago where all teachers in the United States or around the world all, all were, of a sudden shifted to online education. And yeah. I totally hear you. I mean, I think the importance of deliberate planning and online education is critical because if it doesn't happen, classes might fall apart really quickly. And yet it made me appreciate even more when we got through the pandemic, seeing the students in class, having those personal relationships, yes, having the personal relationships with my colleagues, um, you know, that idea of collaboration, which I agree is tricky. I think it's tricky in any school 
working to develop yeah. curriculum. I think naturally teachers enjoy independence. I think any probably profession employees enjoy independence. And so that tension sure. between collaboration and independence is always very real. Um, but I definitely felt when we got through the pandemic and we were back to quote unquote normal, yeah. you know, walking into class and seeing smiles, reading body language was very much appreciated without to the you know, without denigrating online ed or, or, or organizations like GOA who are doing yeah. great, grateful work. So we're, yeah. we're almost coming to, to the end, uh, shifting a little bit. You know, one of the things that I think is most difficult, especially in my role as director of teaching and learning, is just thinking about how we grow as educators, whether you're in your first year or your 40th year. Right. And you and I have worked on a program called the Critical Friends Group. And I was wondering mm. if you could just explain that a little bit to listeners, what that is and you know, your experience and how that's been useful for professional growth. I think it's only one model, but it's an interesting one that we've tried to do at Nobles and, and still continues. Yeah, uh, happy to, although you may want to fill in some of the um, the background for the organization and how CFG mm -hmm. or Critical Friends Group came to be, because you're much better versed than I am. Um, the basic gist of, of CFG is that it gathers a small group of educators. Generally for us, we're working with groups from that range from about uh, five or six to at the at the largest, probably maybe 12 or 13. We try not to get any larger than that. So small groups of educators from a variety of disciplines who teach a variety of ages. So it's it's a diverse group of educators within an institution. There's always a facilitator and a presenter. The presenter brings a question that has something to do with teaching and learning. And this can range from um, a specific assignment, um, uh, the way that they are assessing a particular skill, to uh, something, something much more uh, personal, like, geez, the, the person in this position at my school is... Um, is very difficult to communicate with. I'm finding it to be that to be an impediment to my own pedagogy. Here's how I've gone about it. I need some, I need some help problem solving. Um, the, the options for what kind of a, an issue is brought are, are almost limitless. And what critical friends group uh, offers is a wide variety, a wide array of protocols, very structured way processes whereby the presenter uh, explains and contextualizes the the issue and makes clear what the what the central question is that that person's bringing to the group. And then you walk through in a in a very structured, timed step-by-step uh, -step process um, a protocol that that allows the group to help the presenter address the issue. So what's powerful about CFG is that inevitably all members of the group are engaging in an issue that they can relate to and that they can relate to their own practice, to their own experiences as school people. And uh and in that everybody wins. 
-hmm. it also provides a, a, um, ah, a sense of uh, community. I, I, I'm using a book uh, called Tribe by Sebastian, Sebastian Junger called, uh, sorry, a book called Tribe. Um, but it, 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 the CFG protocols and um, experiences over time create a, a sense of tribe, of being in, being in something together, about striving together toward a shared goal. And that is continually getting better as educators. Um, so I, I have found, and I've heard others say, uh, but I found CFG to be to be probably the most powerful professional development experience uh, that I've had. Yeah. I, I would echo, and it, it makes me proud of the colleagues that have participated. We've had an increasing yeah. number of participants in CFG here at Nobles, and again, just to you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but it is really difficult to continue to grow, particularly when folks are busy. We all have busy lives. We're mm. all teaching. You know that question about. How are we going to keep pushing ourselves? I think CFG has been a model here that's given people an outlet for that. And as mm -hmm. you mentioned, it goes in a lot of different directions. But I think inevitably, whichever direction it goes, you know, the presenter by the end of the protocol usually feels like they're in a better place. And that's because colleagues mm -hmm. have really come and supported them. And I think it speaks to the collaborative culture um, that we're nurturing and building here. And it's always getting better. So, yeah, I agree with that. Conclude. Can I say two mm -hmm. more things? Sure. One is that. Um, the collaborative nature that, that is created through critical friends group is, I think, largely built on our shared agreement to prioritize direct honesty over niceness. <laughs> we, yeah. uh, in places like Nobles or, you know, at least at Nobles, we really do model and teach and expect an environment in which folks are nice. They are respectful. Um, the downside to that is we don't, you know, making, we need to make sure that we are also teaching how to uh, disagree, right? How do you respectfully, honestly, directly, constructively disagree with one another? Mm -hmm. And CFG creates an environment where that happens with uh, refreshing ease and great efficacy, I think. Agreed. I mean, I think that's the paradox of sort of teachers and educators is people come into the profession. They're generally very kind, nice, warm people. But as you mentioned, in any organizational culture, that can actually at times be at the detriment of growth if we're not yeah. being honest with each other. And I think CFG has provided that platform to make sure that that occurs. So yeah. we're about at the 30 minute mark. Jenny, I can't thank you enough for all the different observations, thought that went into your responses. It was a pleasure speaking to you. And for those that are Likewise. listening, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Um, if you hadn't get, gotten a chance to listen to the first podcast, that was with Edgar DeLeon, our chief equity officer here. And we hope to continue these. So thanks so much for listening. And thank you to Jenny. Pleasure. Thanks.